Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you so much for making a commitment to learning and hope everybody is doing well. I'm your host, Jordan Porter, joined by the fabulous Yvonne Brandenburg. Um, Hi, but I feel like, you know, who cares about me at this point? I know, but I'm sticking with with the routine. All right, all right, all right. We also have a special guest this week. Well, actually for the next couple of weeks, thank goodness, because (laughs) cardio is not my jam as much as I want it to be. We are joined by the wonderful Ed Durham. He is a a CVT and LATG, which you'll have to explain to me what that is, and a VTS in cardiology. What is it? LATG? Yes. Pretty cool stuff. It's lab animal technologist. Oh, cool. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, Yvonne was just talking about how you did an episode with Vet Tech Cafe and you kind of told a lot of your history there, but give us kind of like a brief rundown as to who you are for our listeners. Um, Well, I started (laughs) in 1976 working in my stepfather's clinic as a janitor, actually, and I worked one night a week. On Wednesday, I had a three-hour window to clean the entire hospital, oh, and God. very strict that it should take me exactly three hours, no more, no less. And since I was dependent on him for my ride home, if I didn't call at exactly nine o'clock for him to come and get me, I was in trouble. <laughs> so, so that's really how I got started. And then from there, I just gradually worked more and more. Uh, kind of came up through the ranks as an assistant and after about 10 years realized that I actually really loved the career and went ahead and got my licensing in Arizona. Now, you have to remember this is 1986. There's a handful of vet tech schools. When I say handful, I mean literally like five, maybe six. Back mm. and check the historical data. Um but really there was kind of the primary four that got started. And at the time there were so few licensed technicians coming out of these programs that most of the states were doing uh, credentialing of their own. And so in Arizona, you could sit for their comprehensive exam Um, based on your work experience and with some letters of recommendations from doctors. And so Mm. I actually got through as a licensed credentialed veterinary technician in that, in that way, uh, 1986. Wow. That's crazy. Wow. It's been interesting. (laughs) Well, it's so interesting now because there's what over 200 programs. Yeah. I think, I think think every state except Montana and Alaska are the last two places that don't have a tech school. Wow. And I think that's really, um, I think that's important for everyone to remember that our profession is still really young, right? And and yes, most people weren't even alive in the 70s. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> Jordan, I, I like to, sorry. Um, I like to, I, mean, I like to know. tell the, the, well, I used to tell the vet students I worked with and now the young assistants I work with them. I'm, I'm older than parvovirus, which uh-huh. is actually true. Oh my God. <laughs> because when I was a young assistant, so parvovirus emerged like 1978, 1979, I had oh, been wow. working in the field for three or four years. So I remember when parvovirus was an emerging disease. And that was how I cut my teeth on putting in IV catheters was oh, wow. putting in 10, 15, 20, sometimes 50 catheters a day in these dogs that were just crashing with parvovirus. Wow. That's crazy. That's a I literally crazy thought older process. Than parvo. Oh my God. Uh, hopefully we can, hopefully we never say that about a disease. <laughs> I mean, we probably could if we researched it, but yeah. And I think, you know, that's a whole other discussion of just the amazing things that have come around. And I remember when I got my VTS, I think you were, were you the director at large for cardiology I probably in 2016? Was. Probably. Uh, no, not in 2016. At that point, Christy had already, She'd taken, already taken over. over. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember seeing you at the meetings and I was like, Oh, those cardiology people, they're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going to the lectures at ACVIM. So um, I'm excited that we got to steal you to be on here because I, I know. I I know so many of our listeners have wanted cardiology because it, it, I mean, Jordan, Jordan and I, we've talked about it. Cardiology is one of my second loves. I love cardiology. Um, and you know, without the heart, nothing else really matters. So I just got an email last week asking if we would please do cardio soon. And I was like, it's coming. I promise. Like I swear. And if you don't know who Ed is and you love cardiology, just a reminder, um, he was an author editor for one of the textbooks called cardiology for veterinary technicians and nurses. So, you know, he's legit. That was a direct offshoot of the internal medicine Academy. Once we, once we held our first exam was when Wiley Blackwell contacted me and said, we would like to do this textbook. We'd like you to lead it out. Um, And so I went ahead and accepted that. I wrote about half the chapters myself. And then I offered chapters to all the other members of the AIMVT cardiology organizing committee uh, who wanted to write one. Some did, some didn't, some, because the exam was such a monumental task putting that together that people just kind of wanted a break. Um, But several (laughs) people did. And then for certain chapters, so the treatment of heart failure chapter, say, I -hmm. actually got a boarded cardiologist to write it. So now no one can say, hey, how, why is this vet tech out there telling people how to treat heart disease? Well, actually, I I got a a doctor to do it. Smart. So smart. The, the textbook is written at a really interesting spectrum of information. So mm. if you are a brand new ba- baby tech and you want to learn cardio, it starts off with very simple concepts. If you are a brand new vet student who just graduated, the cardiology in it is deep enough to get you into being able to manage your patients in the real world 
hmm. as a basis. And a number of the students that I worked for or worked with at Ross University bought copies. And I've heard from a lot of them saying this book was so helpful to me in clinics because mm. it is unlike some of the human or not human, but some of the, the doctorate level, the specialist level books, it's, it's basic enough that they can sort through it, find what, what they need, and then go to those deeper later. That totally, yeah, that totally makes sense. I currently yeah. have that textbook in my wish list on Amazon because I'm like, <laughs> this is the next one that I'm buying. <laughs> I would be right. glad to sign a copy for you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm gonna like go to like the next conference with like 10 books and be like, all right, everybody just sign books. Right. <laughs> uh, um, awesome. I never really finished my my background. Just I'll do it real, real fast so we yeah. can get into the actual cardio. So once I got licensed, um, I actually went to work in a human hospital in their, their research facility. And their research was all cardiovascular medicine. And we're talking mm-hmm. open heart surgery, cardiovascular medicine. And so I got to work with the human surgeons, putting patients on cardiopulmonary bypass. We had a total artificial heart program. And if your listeners want to Google something fun sometime, Google the Phoenix Heart. I was actually part of that entire fiasco when that went down in which we planted a non-FDA approved artificial heart into a person in Tucson. It was a a life-saving measure. um, And the FDA did slap our hands for that. But I was actually there for that entire event. Uh, A lot of media coverage. Um, after that, I just kind of went back into private practice. I actually dove into dentistry for a while, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then ultimately, I ended up at the University of Missouri, where I took a position in a research facility there doing research in osteoporosis, which was fun because oh. I got to work with pigs, which I'd never done before. And I really like pigs now. Um, and then about 1997, I moved over to the veterinary teaching hospital where I got to work with John Bonagura in mm. the cardiology service. And that was the beginning of the internal medicine portion of my cardiology career. It's just, I really had always been interested in surgery prior to that time. And he really showed me the mystique of internal medicine. I became completely enthralled. And I, I can't remember exactly when, but I had the idea like, well, if doctors can specialize, why can't technicians? Because I've been asked a number of times over my career, like, you know, you're really good at this. Why don't you go to vet school? Well, right. my answer has always been, there's plenty of great vets already. What we need are more great vet techs. And so I've spent my you know, 40 plus career trying to build the profession in whatever small way I could. And after talking with Barb Brewer, who was the technician at Tufts at the time, we kind of started researching what it would take to create a specialty. Then we bumped into Linda Merrill and um, Mm. Shirley Sandoval, who were starting AIMVT. They had no one for cardio. So they were thrilled to have us. So we all kind of pooled our resources and, you know, we are where we are today. That's so awesome. (laughs) Well, I'm definitely thankful that you took that on because 
I can't imagine well, not having cardio as I am too. I think it's a great, reason. I think it's a great addition and, and mm -hmm. it works nicely to be part of the larger or organization. Yeah. Um, I remember some intense negotiations with NAFTA and the um, committee for vet tech specialization about how many people we were going to have to have and our organizing committees and mm. that was that was a a, a big part of, of getting us there and um, so I stayed at the University of Missouri for 18 years doing just cardiology working just in the cardiology service at some point in 2015 I kind of began to feel like there were, I'd done everything I could do at that level. And the service was growing. I wasn't doing as much as I used to. I was pretty much hold, holding for echoes all day. I even got to the point where I didn't like the cath procedures much anymore. Mm. And I've been doing lectures to vet techs about getting out of your com comfort zone, learn some, something new. And so an opportunity came up to go to Ross University and work in anesthesia and I thought anesthesia, cardio, those things are pretty close together. So I brought the cardiology portion to the anesthesia service. And then I learned a lot of anesthesia along the way. Nice. And I stayed there until middle of 2019. And I moved here to South, Southwest Florida. And I'm working just in clinical cardiology now. Mm. Um, primarily, we're just doing the medical side of it. But we just hired a new cardiologist and she's very keen to get in the cath lab and we have our first procedure scheduled next week so ah, now exciting. i get to do anesthesia <laughs> and cardiology cath at the same time so nice. it'll be a whole new level of fun <laughs> oh my god that's awesome yeah i i was always super stoked when my cardiologist let me um help him um they they would have me go in and running anesthesia he gave me gray hair a few times um oh i'm sure but you know, <laughs> you definitely learn a lot. So, so well, that kind it, of brings us up to to what why I have any authority to say anything <laughs> about cardiology at all. Oh my god! Well, you have your BTS in cardiology that makes you makes you have some authority. And I we always, were just talking about how you just came back from a bunch of conferences. So if you've you know if you ever get a chance to listen to Ed lecture at a conference, um, it's definitely it's definitely fun. So. Um, I always joke that for about five minutes, I was the only cardio VTS in the entire world. <laughs> nice. They give you, as the director, you get your certificate first. Oh. And then you give it to all your other or organizing committee members. That's awesome. And at that meeting, it was me and Barb. We were the only two there. And for, oh, maybe Pet Petra was there from N NC State. Oh. Uh, and so... Yeah, so for about five minutes, I was the only one, but nice. I quickly wanted buddies. That's awesome. Yeah, yes. So I think for, um, so this is the first in our series. Um, we're going to start with the basics because you got to start somewhere. Um, and then I think we have you, is it four more after this? I yeah, I think it's it four. four or five. Okay. Yeah. Um, which I mean, which will be a great dive into cardio. Um, but we're going to start with kind of the, the basics. Um, and then just as a reminder, this is pending race approval. Um, it should be an, an hour of CE. Uh, you can definitely use it for self-study, uh, for now, once it's race approved, you can use it for your race approved stuff. Uh, and, um, we'll, you know, we'll let you know once that happens. So, 
we're going to let you kind of just take over because we don't have our BTS. <laughs> <in the room. laughs> so, no. um, you know, we'll let but, you kind of go into this. You have your BTS and... in internal medicine, right? Yeah. Yep. And yeah. Both of them. Yep. Okay. So, you know, you had to study some cardio along, along the way. Just, just yeah. some, not, not quite as much as you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I always kind of start with when I start getting into cardiology, I, I really begin with the question of why do we even have circulation at all? Which often people don't stop and think about a little mm -hmm. bit. And I think that that's a really important part of this because the heart is really just part of a larger system that has an important role, but it also has limitations and it has criteria that it needs to meet. Um, and so I think it's fair to ask that question is why do we even have a heart? Mm -hmm. And the short version of that is because osmosis and diffusion are not terribly efficient. <laughs> so if you're a small single cell organism, it's pretty simple for you to move nutrients in and to move waste products out. And as things, as animals become more and more complex, that becomes more and more difficult. It's as the layers of, of cells multiply, it gets harder to move things in from the outside. And to the best of my knowledge, the most primitive creature with a circulatory system is uh, the earthworm. So pretty much anything that is more complex than an earthworm is going to have some version of a circ circulatory system, which oddly enough is really an extension of the GI tract. It's a way of moving things mm. from the GI tract out to the rest of, of the body, oh, which totally I, I find sense. fascinating. And I just saw an article recently where they actually found um, atrial nat natriuretic pe peptide in the cardiovascular system of earthworm earthworms so you can say you know chemically it is a true heart nice <laughs> the, the circulatory system is interesting because it has to prioritize and yet it has to be flexible right you have some organs that need to have circulation all the time so mm -hmm. brain kidneys leap to the top top of the list. And they do, in fact, get the bulk of cir circulation. But when you're being chased by a giant great bear, your GI tract doesn't necessarily need so much blood supply, but your muscles do. Right. And the circulatory system has this amazingly elaborate methods of changing blood flow based on need, not just sending blood flow everywhere uniformly, which would be incredibly inefficient. Mm. You'd have to have, I don't even know, your blood volume would have to be massive. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and so the circulatory system is this amazing complex des design that allows for blood to be sent to places of high pr priority at any given moment. Now, mm. sometimes these shifts might be de 
detrimental, right? So if you're running and you shift blood to your muscles, that's probably going to take blood away from your kidneys. And so you don't want to entertain that sort of level of activity for too long a period of time, or you're going to actually start other organ systems are going to start to suffer. Hmm. But there is a, 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 the body is very good at balancing those things out. The other thing that happens that people often forget about is that the circulatory system is key in thermal reg regulation. Right. Right. Because you, I, I also recently learned this. This is an amazing phenomenon to me that I, I'm surprised I didn't know this. I'm a little bit ashamed of myself. <laughs> um, I just recently learned about the atrial venous anastomoses or atrial arterial venous anastomoses that all people and presumably other animals have as well. And they're in the palms of our hands and the bottoms of, of our feet. And that's where a huge amount of heat transfer takes place. Oh. And there's an amazing study that came out of Davis that they looked at people doing pull-ups and they found that it's the heat in the muscle that ends muscular activity. And so they started doing this experiment where the test subjects would do a bunch, bunch of pull-ups and then they would go cool their hands. And just real short, they were able to increase their maximal muscle output by 600 per, or like six times over. Wow. Yeah, they were going from 100 pull-ups in a time period to six, 600 because they were cooling their muscles just by cooling the palms of their hands. So wow. the circulatory system has these features of it that we often for, forget about. And then from there, you go to, well, how do we efficiently move things around? That's where the heart comes in into play. Hmm. That's so, so interesting. We, yeah. I wonder like how you can extrapolate different things just based on that. I mean, that, there, there's so many like things that you can get from that. That's really cool though. Yeah. And I think that that's an important part of uh, thinking about cardiology. We often think about it as the oxygen transfer system, which mm. obviously is its prime primary uh, point, but it works both ways. Mm -hmm. It's the carbon dioxide transport system. It's a heat transport system. It's the hormone transport system. Right. It, it all does of all those things, things. Yeah. All of those things come into play. Um, and so I always tell people that when you're going to start into cardiology, you really need to start with the anatomy and the phys physiology. That's yes. It's, it seems obvious, but I feel like perhaps more than any other system, the cardiovascular system lends itself well to simple un understanding if you know the basic concepts mm -hmm. and that if you understand the basic concept, you can work out problems based on those first prin principles. Mm, but yeah, that's very true. It's not, it's not like the endocrine, which is <laughs> sometimes an enigma, um, cardiology. And I, that's probably one of the reasons I do like it is um, yes, it's complex, but it's also very simple. Like exactly. there's, you know, it's it just, and, and, you know, it's simple and it's designed that way to be simple. So, because it's such an important thing. Um, so I think that's, that, I don't know. I really like cardio because of that. 
So I always, you know, learn, learn the chambers, learn the valves, learn the timing of events. Like I always shock people when I say, you realize the mitral valve op opens twice in every cardiac cycle. And people are, I'm sorry, do what? Because we think of it like the heart contracts, then it relaxes and the mitral valve opens and blood rushes in and then we start the next cycle. Well, actually the mitral valve opens twice. It opens once with the early relaxation and then it opens a second time with the atrial contraction right before mm. ventricular systole. So these are all details that if you understand, make what you see in clinical practice make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that Perhaps neurology would be the second closest thing. I feel like the cardiovascular system lends itself very well to understanding problems based on the physical exam. Yeah, yeah. We, we can look at jugular distension and understand that there's increased right atrial pressures, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We can feel... Um, alternating intensity of pulses, pulses al alternates, and know, okay, that's the thing associated with pericardial effusion. Mm -hmm. We can feel uh, dramatic pulses, dramatic femoral pulses, and know, okay, well, the pulse pressure is widened. Instead of being 120 over 80, maybe it's 120 over 40, and so I feel this bounding pulse. That's what you see with things like patent duct ductus arteriosus. So, mm. you know, that doesn't even touch on the, the murmurs. Right. 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 The whole physical exam side of it, a good cardiologist will get about 95% of the way to the correct diagnosis with just history and physical exam because mm. the, it, the cardiovascular system shows you what's wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to understand the ba basic principles. You've got to understand that, the first heart sound, the lub, is closing of the AV valves, and that uh, the second heart sound, dub, is the closing of the semilunar valves, uh, aortic and pulmonic, and um, that the third and fourth heart sounds are sounds of ventricular filling, and what does a murmur mean, and what does that murmur mean in the location where I hear it? Well, if I hear it on the right, well, perhaps it's tricuspid valve regurgitation, or if it's really loud and has a thrill, maybe it's a VSD. So just in that right there, just by knowing that the murmur is louder on the right or the left, I've limited the possibilities down. Mm -hmm. Then we get into the diagnostics that can show us the magnitude of the disease and its con consequences, and then just kind of confirm what we suspected on physical exam and history. And so, I find that those are the places that you need to start. The other thing that I think is somewhat confusing for people, um, and may maybe not vet tech so much, but often the public in general, is the difference between heart disease and heart failure. Mm, yeah. That, that becomes a stum stumbling block for a lot of people. They think that those terms are interchangeable a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really not. Heart disease just simply means that there is something abnormal about your heart, whether it's an arrhythmia, whether it's um, morphologic, you've got a valve leaking, or it's co a congenital defect. It could be 
uh, myocardial disease, so DCM in dogs, uh, mm -hmm. dilated cardiomyopathy in dogs, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in cats type, type of thing. You can have those diseases and still be relatively fun functional. Mm -hmm. The problem becomes when you reach heart failure. And this is a very specific, I, I love this, def this definition I heard. And heart failure is the condition where your heart is no longer able to produce enough cardiac output to meet your metabolic needs in the face of normal to enhanced preload. And that's a key point. So what that means is that you can have a dehydrated patient and they don't have enough cardiac output to meet their normal met metabolic needs. That's not heart failure. Right, right. Heart failure is when I can't meet those metabolic needs, but I have plenty of volume to fill my heart with. Right. And that's a nice dis distinction. And the way heart failure manifests itself the majority of the time is going to be fluid backup in the tissues that lead to the chamber that's failing. Most commonly, we think of pulmonary edema because the lungs are the chambers that are leading to the left side of the heart, left atrium, left ventricle, which are going to cause, which could be failing, which is going to cause pul pulmonary edema. If you mm -hmm. have so-called right heart failure, you have failure of the right ventricle and fluid backs up, then you see it as ascites and or, or, or organomegaly. megaly. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a useful thing for folks to keep in mind. It also becomes the foundation for the American College of Veterinary um, Internal Medicine's cardiology group categorization of heart, heart disease. And so they created a system of A, B, C, and D. And then B has actually been divided into two different things. So um, A, if you're a, a dog that ha is A, you're a dog that is of a genetic predisposition that you are likely to develop heart disease in the future. So things like Cavalier King Charles Spaniels and Do Doberman Pinschers, right? If they could be right. young, healthy, happy, they have no, no problems, they're, they're in the A group. When you get to a B, then you've got some accessible heart disease. Usually it presents as a murmur. Hmm. And the B gets divided into these two different categories, which I'm going to come back to. So if you're B, now you have some structural change that can be detected on a physical exam. When you get to C, you're actually in congestive heart failure. Mm. So A is I'm predisposed. B is there's some finding on physical exam. C is I've actually progressed into congestive heart failure. And then D is what we term refractory to therapy. These are the end stage dogs. Mm. that you're now throwing every drug in the toolbox at them. It's working some of the times. You're, they're constantly in for changes in me medication. Right. Those are your, your details. So the B becomes particularly important because there is a stage within the B that intervention can make a difference. So right. we back up a step. B1 
are dogs that have heart murmurs, but their hearts are still substantially structurally normal, meaning the ventricle in particular is of normal size and function. They are allowing B1 dogs to have some mild left atrial enlargement and still classifying them as B1. Once you cross the line into B2, now you have cardiac remodeling that presents as dilation of the left ventricle and potential loss of function of the left, left ventricle. And this mm -hmm. line is dramatic in that that's where we start the pemobendin. If you start the pemobendin, when they cross over from B1 to B2, we know very clearly through the EPIC trial that the disease-free period between B1 and C is longer with pemobendin than without it. Mm. So that becomes a very important concept for people to understand when they're saying, when they hear people say, early. oh, he's got B1, he's got B2. B2. Mm. If he's B2, he's on pemobendin. If he's B1, he's not. And there are clinicians out there who are hearing a murmur, starting him on pemobendin. Right. Well, it's probably <laughs> not doing them any harm, but it is not doing them any, any advantage. Right. So getting that echo allows us to make that de determination. Right. That's a useful piece of in information. Because you can't yeah. even tell from a radiograph. You can tell if they're at heart failure, but you can't tell from a radiograph. If yeah, and we've B1 had or B, or B, B2. Yeah, and we've had patients that will transfer to us, um, and the 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 primary vet has already started them on pemobendin just because they're worried that they're not going to get soon, seen soon enough, and they want to start it. And then they get to the cardiologist, and he's like. No, we're good. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. You're good. And so um, it's hard because, well, it is, you know, they don't have the, the echocardiogram in most primary facilities. And so they right. want to prevent issues. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, and most dogs to tolerate hemobendin incredibly well. So it's mm -hmm. not necessarily wrong to start them on it. And we do get the occasional case that They've been on it for some period of time and they come in and they have pretty dilated atria, but their ventricles are still normal. And we're like, mm. okay, well, is that because they've been on pemobendin and now they're doing really well? Right. So do you take them off? Well, maybe not because they're probably doing really well because they're on the pemo. And mm. so, you know, like all things in medicine, there's not always a clear path forward. Right. So that's how I would start this discussion. Nice. I love the B1, B2 thing because I've never, I, I don't work in cardiology, so I, I've never heard that. Um, but I think that's really cool. It's good. It's good to have. It's, so. It is absolutely fundamental to what cardiologists do these, these days. Yeah. Absolutely fun, fundamental. And I mean, we even talk, talk about it like that. Oh, he's a B, he's a B, B2. And mm. if you know what that means, it says everything mm. for you. And I work with some really cool technicians who are just learning cardiology and they'll say, when they're presenting the history. So Fluffy was in six months ago. She was a B, B2 with moderate LV dilation and moderate or mild dysfunction, moderate LA dilation. And the cardiologists and I are kind of look, looking at each other like, 
Yeah, we know that she's B2. <laughs> but, you know, then we kind of assess from there. Um, now, is it something similar to like, um, I think of the iris guidelines for kidneys? Is it like if you can you move back and forth between B1, B2? Like if you are B2, you start, well, no, because that's based on pemobendin. And well, it's not and like you really take them off of it and then you go back into B1. Very right? rarely. So there are patients that will cross the line. They go to B1. They come back six months later. We echo them. They're now back to, sorry, they cross the line. They're in B2. We start them on pemobendin. They come back six months later or a year later, and they are, in fact, gone back to B1, we usually leave them on the pemobendin. Because um, you're because at this point, we're assuming it's working and we don't want right. to push them back into B2. Exactly. Now, Got it. Okay. That, that being said, every case is different. Right. And we've certainly <laughs> seen... <laughs> yeah, it's medicine, right? So, you know, the answer is it depends. Um, there are definitely dogs out there that they rupture a cord, they mm. go into heart failure, you put them on pemobendin, and a year later, they're doing great, they're remodeled, their body's ha handling it, they're off all their heart, heart failure meds, mm. their hearts look fantastic, and the car cardiologist will sometimes, okay, can we wean them off of their, their pemobendin as well? Mm. It, again, you take that on a case-by-case -case basis, but it can absolutely happen. So, but, in, and they can definitely be a C and then go back to like a B2. So generally, you, once you're a C, you're always a C. You're always a C. Okay. You might be able to come off of your heart failure meds, mm -hmm. but the chances of you going back into failure are generally pretty high. Right. Okay. Cool. So um, I'm, I won't say it never happens, but usually once you cross into failure, you, you stay as a C whether you can, you might be controlled or un, uncontrolled. Mm, mm -hmm. Oh, that so, makes sense because you said D was refractory. D is refractory. So, so D be, is, okay. you know, your sort of end stage dogs that are now on, you know, four or five different me medications. They right. may be back every cup, couple of weeks or a cup, couple of months through the ER and they have, have to have their, their medications adjusted. So funny you say that and I'm like, I know this pet, this pet, and this pet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't even work cardiology, but I know which ones are the D's in my hospital. <laughs> well, and you know, we we see though our, our hospital is cardiology, surgery, and e emergency. So we mm -hmm. see a lot of cardiology emergencies because we have the cardiologists. Yeah, yeah. Same, same with my location. Um so. One thing that I think we can talk about are the predilections for different creatures to have different things. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely a pattern in cardiology that we see. And this is not to say that there are not exceptions because obviously, again, we've mentioned this medicine, there are, <laughs> but, you know, generalities are generally true. Right. So when it comes to the types of heart disease we see, let's just stick with a acquired heart, heart disease to start with. Um, I, I learned this rule from 
Dr. Bonagura. So we kind of sexually refer to it as as the the Bonagura rule, which is <laughs> if you can pick your dog pet up with one hand, it's probably going to have valve disease. <laughs> oh my if God, it that's takes, so true. <laughs> if it takes two hands or a friend, it's probably going to develop dilated cardiomyopathy. <sighs> Cocker spaniels, they're kind of right in the middle. Like you can almost get them with one hand, but sometimes you need that other hand to, to, to balance. They actually get both. Oh, of course. <laughs> right? Nice. Um, when it comes to cats, they are going to primarily be cardiomyopathies. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, restrictive cardiomyopathy, and then what we're terming unclassified because it doesn't actually fit into a category. Mm. Dilated cardiomyopathy in cats is incredibly rare. It is almost always nutritionally based mm. due to a lack of taurine in the cat's diet. So when I first started doing this, we actually did see dilated cardiomyopathy not too uncommonly. When I say started this, I mean back in the 70s. Right. And then they figured out what the link was. Mm. And so they pet food companies started adding taurine to the cat food, and we almost never see it in, anymore. The cases I can think of, were people who said, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with this cat. She only eats the dog food. Mm. And then we, so it's that, that kind of thing. So cats, cardiomyopathies, dogs, small dogs, valve disease, large dogs, myocardial disease, like dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, and then you have the boxers that present with arrhythmia-induced cardiomyopathies. In that case, as if we're talking to, you know, gen general categories, the arrhythmia starts first and then the myocardial failure comes second. So mm. you see okay. ventricular arrhythmias that start in the right ventricle and they can develop into ventricular tachycardia. Over time, those hearts do tend to dilate and lose systolic fun function. So with the Dobermans, we think of primarily muscle failure first, then arrhythmias. With boxers, we think arrhythmias first and then mu muscle failure. That's hmm. not to say that sometimes Dobermans can't look like boxers and boxers can look like Dobermans, but as broad cat categories, those things tend to hold true. And mm. that, that arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy is what people will refer to in lay terms as boxer cardiomyopathy. It's that right-sided ventricular arrhythmia first. Mm. Then your congenital defects will, virtually any patient, right? Mm -hmm. But there are certain predispositions that we rec recognize. Um, things like PDAs are often Maltese's, Shelties. I've seen them in Collies. Um, we have a Doberman coming in with one, you know, oh, wow. so really anybody can get P PDAs. Things like pulmonic stenosis are primarily small dogs, carriers, 
things like that. We see it in boxers. Uh, we see it in mm -hmm. bulldogs a lot. A lot of French bull bulldogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> things like subaortic stenosis. That tends to be your big, big dogs. Um, mm -hmm. Oddly enough, in my experience, the one big dog breed that seems to be very rare for developing subaortic stenosis is Labrador Retrievers. And they're the poster child for tricuspid valve dysplasia. And I've seen a okay. fair bit of pulmonic stenosis in lab Labradors as, as well. Hmm. And then there's all kinds of weird fun stuff that I just love to talk about because I'm a dork. Um, tetralogy of Fallot being one of my favorites. We'll have to like go into more detail on some of those. Well, we will go into more detail on some of those episodes <laughs> <laughs> that are coming up. Yep. <laughs> well, I'll just throw one fun fact out there about Tetralogy of Fallot. Everybody learns it as four defects. You learn VSD, overriding aorta, pulmonic stenosis, and right, right ventricular hypertrophy. When you break it down to the em embryology, it's actually one defect with four manifestations. Wow. It's a, it's a failure of the spiral septum that separates the aorta from the pulmonary artery in the em embryo. Huh. And you end up with four manifestations of this one defect. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So, um, so they're all related. Yeah, they're all related. And then the last category of, of diseases that you're going to see commonly are going to be um, the arrhythmias. So we already talked about ventricular tach tachycardia. The other side of that are symptomatic bradycardias. So sick sinus syndrome for the schnauzers and the, the Westies. Right. Um, they, they tend the to be overrepresented. <laughs> Third degree AV block shows up in almost anybody. I've seen it in virtually every breed of dog that I can think of, from small little poodle dogs to lab Labrador Retrievers. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a can be an anybody kind of dis disease. Um, I mentioned earlier that the cardiologist can get about 95% of the way to the correct diagnosis with just history and f physical exam. think that People underestimate the value of those two things in medicine today yeah, sure. broadly. Mm -hmm. And I say that because we have such great technology that people tend to just go for the test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's fine, but the test needs to come with a question. What are you ruling out? What, what question do you have that that test is going to answer? And it's one of the things that I see commonly in multiple ERs that ER doctors have a patient come in and the, you know, comes to lab work. They want the full chem 17. They want the CBC. They want the UA because mm -hmm. they want to make sure they don't miss anything where I think that you're, if you get a good history to physical, that maybe you could fo focus that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, do you have in, um, in your cardiology book, I'm sure you do. Do you have like a list of basic history questions that are geared towards cardiology? I don't have it as a list per se. Okay. I just have text that describes taking a good history and all the things that you should have. Got ask. it. Okay. So one of the things that 
is very common for dogs and heart failure is they will cough more at night. Mm-hmm. So we always ask, you know, is, is your dog coughing? Well, yes, he is. Does it seem to be more prevalent any time of day? Yeah, he cough, coughs at night. He can't seem to get comfortable. Right. Well, that right there is a version or a form of orthopnea. You know, we think mm-hmm. of orthopnea as the dog sitting on the table with their el- elbows out, trying to suck, suck in air. Well, the more subtle form of that, of orthopnea, because they're moving around, they're making postural changes to increase their ability to breathe, is that getting up and down a lot during the night and coughing more at at night. And Mm. we figured this out from listening to humans, that humans in heart failure will cough more at night. What it comes down to simply is if you um, understand cardiac physiology, you understand that when you walk around during the day, the muscle contractions help move blood back through the system, back to the heart. When you lay down, that feature stops. So blood tends to pool. And if you're right on that verge, you might develop more signs of congestion throughout the night. So that's an Mm. important question is the history. So that's just an example of, of getting that sorting out the difference between a syncopal or fainting event and a seizure, right? Because both seizure and syncope can prevent or present with a paddling type of motion. They can present with the falling over. They can present with the urination and or defecation. The one thing that separates them out is the time to recovery. If you have a seizure, you've got that postictal phase. Yeah. If you have syncope, people will say, oh, he was back to normal within a minute. He like, popped up and just was like, cool, I'm, I'm back exactly. to normal. Yep. Exactly. And one of the questions my cardiologist will ask clients is, if you were to leave the room and come back a couple mm. of minutes later, was he normal or was he not? They're oh, like, oh, he to was totally normal. Or no, he was still out of it for a long. And we have patients that actually have both. They have yeah. seizure history and they're in failure <laughs> and they're having syncopal sing- events. Yeah, we had we had one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she her name was Mia. She got a pacemaker and then that didn't solve all of it. And we we're like, you're actually still having seizures. And it was just like a whole thing. I yeah. remember that. <laughs> I was like, so, really? <laughs> you have to remember that they can present with two different things at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, the physical exam. Very important feature of that is when folks are palpating for pulses, remember you can't palpate a pulse and get any really reliable information about blood pressure. Mm. All you're really detecting is the difference between the systolic and the diastolic pressure. So if you have low blood pressure, but the difference in the diastolic and the systolic is about 40 millimeters of mercury, those pulses are going to feel normal. Likewise, mm. if you have systemic hypertension and your blood pressure is 160 over 120, pulses are going to feel normal. Mm. So that's, I think that's a very important thing to remember. Now, I think it's safe to say that, you know, particularly in the ER, if you have other signs of shock and you have weak pulses, okay, they're probably hypotensive. But I think we have to keep in the back of our mind that just because I feel normal pulses doesn't mean my patient has a normal blood pressure. Right. So that's right. a, that's a 
a thing that I, I try to emphasize with the physical exam. Um, learning where the heart valves are when you're doing an auscultation. And I am a huge, huge proponent of the fact that technicians can hear murmurs. I don't yeah. want to hear the, I, I, I refuse to accept the, if I can hear the murmur, it's at least a grade three. Unless you have hearing problems, you can hear a grade two murmur. I promise you. Mm -hmm. You just have to stop and listen and, and take your time and learn where the valve areas are so that you know, oh, I hear this murmur. It's on the left side, close to the sternum. That's the left apex. It's probably my mitral regurgitation. Yeah. Well, and I think another thing too is, um, cause technicians like, especially baby techs, they'll always ask me, well, which, which stethoscope should I get? And I'm like the one that works best for you. And, and I can't tell you what that is. Is it going to be a pediatric? Is it going to be a regular one? Is it going to be a cardiac? It all depends on what works best for you to hear and what you are the most comfortable with. Having said that, I have a cardiac. <laughs> you want to talk you about like, stethoscopes for a minute? We can. We definitely can. Because I feel like that is definitely part of cardiology basics. Like, oh, for sure. Oh. And that's a lot of our questions that we get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, Ugh. So my answer for that is you get what you pay for. Yeah. If you pay for a $20 scope, you're going to get high noise to signal meaning what I want to hear versus all the extraneous noise in the ER, I'm going to get more extraneous noise than what I want to hear. Yeah. If you're willing to pay for a stethoscope that runs you $120 to $140, you're going to get a really high quality stethoscope that will drown out some of that extraneous noise in the room, has very good acoustics, and will allow you to hear very well. So the stethoscopes that I like, I'm, I'm, I'm a unabashed stealth stethoscope snob. The stethoscopes I like I hope so. <laughs> are um, the Welch Allen Harvey Elite is my favorite steth stethoscope. All right. Um, I like it because it comes with a large diaphragm. It comes with a small diaphragm and it comes with a head that has a separate bell on one side and a diaphragm on the other. Mm. The bell lets me hear gallops better. So I like having that thing separate. If I was in human medicine, I would pick the Littman Cardio, either the Cardio 3, or I guess there's a Cardio 4 now. Oh, and that has an integrated bell and diaphragm. I think that that is a great stethoscope. My my only caveat to that is that our patients have hair coats. And when I'm trying to use the bell by putting it lightly on the chest, I find that the hair rubs on the diaphragm, making it harder for me to hear the soft gallop sounds. Mm. So I like a stethoscope that has a bell that doesn't have a diaphragm behind it. It's a separate bell side. Um, and then from there... It's yes, the other Lit Litmans are good stethoscopes. And as you go down in price, you'll go down in quality. Right. And I just think that's a nice uniform rule. I do think it is important to match the size of the diaphragm to the size of the patient. 
So there really isn't a veterinary stethoscope per se. What there are is human stethoscopes that we adapt to veterinary medicine. And the diaphragm that's about, oh, an inch and a half, two inches across, that's for an adult human. So I use that for my Great Danes and Wolfhounds and, and other giant breed dogs. The one that's about an inch in diameter, the one that we use most commonly is a um, pediatric stethoscope size, right? So that's for your children children. Well, most of my patients are about the size of a child. So I use the small one for the majority of my patients. And I don't have one now because I, it got destroyed, but I like to also have a, a neonatal mm. stethoscope and Littman's the only one I know that makes one. And there have that little tiny head. That's like a half, I guess it's like three, three quarters of an inch. Yeah. And that's really good for the little tiny patients and the pup puppies and kittens. So, I mean, that and that actually is have... one diaphragm and, and a se separate bell again. Yeah. So that's and, my, and it makes that's sense my spiel to... on stethoscopes. Right. And, and it does make sense to have the appropriate equipment for what you're working on. Right. Like, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think, and I think that comes down to you know, what, what is it that you want out of your stethoscope? Is it just like, you're just getting a heart rate? Well then, yeah, you know, you can get that with any of them. You can get that with the $20 one. Do you want to start seriously listening to the heart and seeing if you can listen and pick up on murmurs and, you know, listen to lung sounds and all that you're, you're going to want to get and then invested into a stethoscope. Um, so I will tell you that I have a, a, a Littman, no, sorry, not a Littman. I have a, a Harvey elite sold by Welch, Welch Allen. Um, I paid $90 for it when I bought it. Now this was like 1998. <laughs> I still have it. It's, I have all the original pieces on it. If you take care of them, they will last you forever. It is, yeah. it is the piece of equipment you will buy for your practice that has the greatest value for the amount of money you spend on it. Yeah. A refractometer costs you a thousand bucks. It tells Ooh. you two things, right? Right. An ultrasound machine costs you 15 to $20,000. And for most people, it tells them one or two or three things. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Okay? laughs> Your stethoscope is the thing that will tell you about the lungs. It'll tell you about the heart. It'll tell you about gut sounds. Like there's mm -hmm. a lot you can get from a steth stethoscope yeah. and you pay a hundred bucks for it. Yeah. So I, I'm always uh, inclined to tell people, go ahead and, and spend a little extra and then take care of it. Yes. It's the tip of the week. And then with regards to the stethoscope, the tip of the week is you get what you pay, pay for. <laughs> yes. Buy, buy, buy a stethoscope that will serve you well and has good acoustics. You'll be glad you did in, in the long, long run, particularly if you work in a noisy uh, room like an ICU. Mm, yeah. Or in sur surgery where yeah. there's a lot of machines and things going on. It's very true. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take a break in the middle of this conversation with Ed, because 
we realized that the cardio basics uh, are more extensive than we originally thought. So we're going to make this the part one and part two. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to take a break here for part one. And then next week will be part two of the basics. Um, so for now, we do have the question of the week. And now for the question of the week. Who's excited for the cardiology series? I am. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's the great question. All of us. All of the above. <laughs> so, and, and actually that brings up a good point. Like if you know people who are totally going to be into this series and um, you know, Ed, he's awesome. Uh, let them know about, about the series because it's going to be through October. Through the end of October, right? Beginning of, beginning of November, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Think with all the episodes um so definitely let let your friends know um that this is happening because it's cardio um and then just so you guys know um because we're getting we're getting closer and closer to vet tech appreciation yeah week. it's officially october i know it's so exciting so this week or this week this year for Vet Tech Appreciation Week. It starts on October 17th and it goes through um, October 23rd. So this is 2021. Uh, and during Vet Tech Week, um, we're gonna have some fun, we're gonna have some fun stuff that we're gonna talk about for Vet Tech Week. So um, just keep your ears open. Um, we'll post it on Facebook. We'll put it in our email mm -hmm. newsletter. So if you want to be part of the newsletter list, definitely go sign up uh, at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. That way you can get all of our updates. Yeah. And we'll be running a special too on our membership site. Um, so keep an eye out for that because that's going to be kind of a this time only deal. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to be the first to know, I would definitely sign up for our email list because um, we're going to be, we'll, we'll definitely let everybody know there. So um, yeah, but I do, I learned so much. I know. I know. I was so, I'm so I was excited. So quiet Cause I'm just like taking it all in <laughs> and I'm just like, I, it was like being at an actual like lecture and it was kind of nice. Like, yeah. Well, and next week, like we just recorded next week. So we know what next week's already going to yes. be. And it's also super cool. So <laughs> he makes so definitely very like, oh, that makes total sense. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes. Well, and it helps that, I mean, he's been doing it for so long. Yeah. Like it's, it's so awesome. But, all right, guys. Well, um, we hope you enjoyed part one of our cardiology basics. And then we'll, we'll dive into part two next week. Otherwise, you know, just keep getting your learn on and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.
Okay. Yep. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much for making a commitment to learning and hope everybody is doing well. Thank you for joining us on part two of our basics cardiology episode. Um, I'm your host. I'm Jordan Porter, joined by the fabulous Yvonne Brandenburg. And of course, we still have Ed Durham this week, CVT, LATG, VTS, and cardiology because, you know, he knows all things cardiology. I know, right? <laughs> 